Welcome back everyone to Clinicians Brief, the podcast, where we get to explore the conversations behind the content. I'm your host, Dr. Alyssa Watson, and I have a very special guest today, Dr. Elizabeth Drake. Dr. Drake is an associate professor of small animal dermatology at the University of Tennessee. Our conversation today was inspired by her recent Clinicians Brief article, Skin Biopsy for Diffuse Dermatologic Disease in Cats and Dogs. Today, we're gonna to talk about how to correctly describe some dermatologic lesions, as well as discuss which diseases are best identified through skin biopsy. Dr. Drake is also going to walk us through the procedure and provide some practical tips. So if you're looking for ways to improve your chances of getting accurate skin biopsy results, you're in the right place today. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Drake. How are you doing? Thank you, I'm wonderful. Thank you very much, I appreciate it. Before we get into our conversation, and I have lots and lots of questions about skin biopsies for you, I would love it if you could just introduce yourself quickly to our audience, give us a little background. I know you spent a little time at uh, Iowa State University, which is my alma mm-hmm. mater, so I'm sure our audience would love to hear about that. Sure. Um, I'm a Texas A&M graduate, um, 1997, just a few years ago now, and um, I was in general practice, small animal practice, for four years in Houston. A uh, really busy practice. In fact, my um, my former boss just announced her formal retirement yesterday. I happened to see it on Facebook and thanked her profusely for my experience with her. Um, I did a residency soon after that here at the University of Tennessee. Uh, left for about 10 years, was at Iowa State for uh, about 10 years with Dr. Knoxon, our, our, we all know him well. And then I was lured back to Tennessee in 2013. I've been back here since and um, love my place. This is my home, although I miss Iowa all the time and have the Cyclones on my sports calendar, um, ball, football, and basketball. Absolutely. And uh, at the time of recording, we're coming up this weekend as the Iowa State uh, Iowa game. So mm-hmm. that's where we will be I on know. Saturday. <laughs> Uh, oh, good. That's so fun. My house is right by the stadium, and I really, I really miss it this time of year. Yep, absolutely. So I, yes, I graduated shortly before you came to Iowa State. So unfortunately, I didn't get to have you as one of my professors. But back then, I was taught that the standard kind of minimum database for skin disease um, included a fungal culture deep and superficial skin scrapes, and then cytology of the skin. And that was kind of drilled into us. I'm probably dating myself. This was before we had fantastic Mm -hmm. things like all the lanners and PCR testing for Mm. for ringworm and things like that. But is that really still, you know, kind of the baseline recommendation? What are the recommendations these days? Um, the modifications of that, um, I mean, it really depends on the skin lesions that are present. And so, uh, for dogs, most of the time, I mean, almost every dog we see has some kind of, uh, superficial skin infection or an otitis. And so, um, if it's indicated, then, uh, superficial skin scrapings, deep skin scrapings, deep skin scrapings, especially the first visit. Um, I rarely fungal culture dogs anymore because the carry on is the typical presentation. And these are usually superficial crusting, alopecia, kind of itchy things. And so um, fungal cultures for cats, absolutely in the beginning, but um, for dogs, it's mostly getting really comfortable with ruling out demodicosis. And um, to be honest, we, we've seen some referral demodex cases lately, and I thought we would be done with that after all of the different, um, as you mentioned, the lanners that are available. And I was kind of afraid the students would never see the disease, um, but we've seen a few cases. So yes, yeah, superficial skin scrapings at the beginning, um, not forgetting the deep skin scrapings when you have a really, really itchy dog and you suspect uh, scabies, for example. And then I think where we really, um, really lack um, 
communication skills and just good instruction is how to get a good superficial uh, pustular crusting cytology. Um, we use tape a lot for certain locations, but I think uh, we miss out on, I'm not able to communicate clearly sometimes how to get a really good juicy cytology sample with a glass slide from under a crust. Explaining that could be challenging. I, I ask the students all the time, do you remember the exercise when you did like how to give instructions how to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And they kind of look at me quizzically, but it's kind of the same exercise. How do you, do you explain that quickly? Mm -hmm. And I sort of love to do like a, I don't know, step-by-step -step picture video or I don't know, document or something. It's not hard, but when you try to explain it, it doesn't seem very logical. Hmm. That's one of the nice things um, I think for our audience, you know, after they've listened, go check out this article on the Clinician's Brief website because there's fantastic photos that go along with it. And that can really help, I find, um, you know, to, to dig deeper and, and get some insight on how to perform a lot of these procedures. So we are talking about skin biopsy today. Mm -hmm. um, and so what types of conditions are skin biopsies really kind of essential in order to diagnose? You know, I, I always think mm -hmm. of immune-mediated disease, but are there mm -hmm. others? Certainly. Uh, anything that's deep and draining or nodular is going to be good. So anything, it might be a neoplasm or a mass of some sort or just a deep draining infectious or sterile condition, autoimmune especially. Anything that's ulcerated or crusted, deeply crusted, you know, where the skin is completely eroded or ulcerated is important. So drug eruptions, um, deep draining things, masses, those are the kind of things we want to biopsy. Some of the hair loss conditions. Um, but for the vast majority of our workup, skin biopsy is not an everyday tool that we would use. And then there are a few really common disorders that skin biopsies really aren't helpful for, right? So why why are mm -hmm. skin biopsies less reliable when we're looking at diagnosing things like allergic skin disease or skin <clears throat> disease that's secondary to endocrinopathies? Sure. I mean, those diseases are more, more based on ruling out other conditions and clinical signs are really, really important when you're... Uh, differentiating those conditions. And some of the biopsies, for example, if you're looking at an alopecia disorder like the Pomeranians with alopecia X, their biopsy is basically the same as any of the endocrinopathies. They have similar features. And so you wouldn't be able to tell that dog based on biopsy from a hypothyroid dog or sometimes a dog with even Cushing's disease. And so there's just a lot of overlap. And so clinical signs are really, really important. And biopsy is only a part of the puzzle or part of the workup in those cases. I've found that there are, um, especially, you know, the main commercial labs that we use that I use in clinical practice, that they actually have a separate test code for dermatohistopathology versus kind of the standard histopath that I'm using if I, you know, excise a dermal mass or something like that, or, or take a liver biopsy. Um, sure. And so... Uh, other than, you know, is it really important to select this service, number one? Like, how important is it to say we really want a dermatohistopathologist? And um, how can we make sure that, that that pathologist reading the samples is really well-versed in skin lesions? That's an excellent question. And I feel like it's really, it's very, very important to understand what the service actually is offering. Um, I have some colleagues and friends that have worked for the various laboratories in the past, and that may not include the, the, the dermatologist. Sometimes it's the dermatologist reviewing the report and then interpreting what the pathologist has written, um, and they may not see the slides at all. And the, the definition of a dermatohistopathologist is a little bit fuzzy um, in our practice. We have a lot of pathologists that are interested in dermatologic diseases, but um, there are very few people that just do 
veterinary dermatology pathology. And so um, with the commercial labs, I just, I would just double check uh, and make sure you know what you're, what you're ordering, because um, sometimes it is just an interpretation of the report. And that's not a bad thing. It's just that it may be uh, misunderstood what the expectation is. Yeah. So just like everything else, really open lines of communication, pick up the mm-hmm. phone, call the lab, things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are there some other ways that we can, you know, help the pathologist out on our end? Could you give some examples of what kind of clinical history do we need to be including? Um, you know, obviously where the lesion is, what it looked like, but how detailed do you get, how much information do you give the pathologist about things like response to previous treatment or diet history? And are those things really helpful? And they're excellent question. Uh, history is essential when you're ordering these tests and um, the reading these slides blind without any pictures or information is extremely difficult. Um, actually, that's part of our uh, board's training preparation for our residents, and it's, it's hard. Um, we have the advantage of the pictures of seeing the dog and examining the dog, so any kind of distribution is really helpful. Is it symmetrical, asymmetrical, acute onset, chronic onset? Um, is it only the white hair that's affected or the white-haired areas, or is it only the dark-haired areas, or um, is it just on the feet or just on the one foot or versus both front feet? Or The distribution and symmetry are really, really helpful, and then describing the lesions is um, make it as simple as possible. If it's draining or nodular or um, ulcerated, that's really, really important as well. And if there's an opportunity to, to select some clinical photos, I think that's really helpful for the pathologist. As far as treatment failures or successes, I think grouping the treatments together is sufficient. So um, non-responsive to multiple courses of oral antibiotics and steroids or something like that. Diet trial isn't really going to be helpful. Um, and if there's any previous biopsies, especially from another service or another clinician, potentially uh, including that information would be really helpful for the pathologist. Absolutely. Um, I think having the availability of smartphones and recording devices you know, with us all the time has really changed the way that I've practiced. I know um, mm. I can get a lot better photographs it, oftentimes if I'll, I'll put my phone on video, you know, and, mm. and take a short video and move, you know, open, spread the toes mm. to look at lesions mm-hmm. between things like that. And then you can take a screen grab of those, those types of things. And I know for me, that's really been helpful um, as a way to communicate to other clinicians, you know, what I'm seeing. So um, it's just mm-hmm. something that I've found helpful. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's trying to to uh, interpret, you know, dermatitis or skin disease is really challenging. Um, and I, I really give them a lot of credit for what they're able to, to do. So let's talk a little bit about preparing the patient. Okay. So, um, I, and, and I want to talk about like the actual patient, not, we're going to talk about how to prepare the skin, how to prepare the lesions, but, um, oftentimes we need to change or discontinue medications that these patients have been on before we, we do skin biopsies. Um, so what like different immunosuppressive agents, how can those influence our, our skin biopsy results? Another excellent question. I just had this conversation with a veterinarian a few days ago. Uh, really, the only medication that's uh, going to interfere with interpretation is corticosteroids, and that includes topical steroids or um, systemic. And that for systemic, I mean even eye drops, ear drops. Some of the really potent um, ophthalmologic medications can be um, can affect the skin lesions. But back to the cytology I mentioned earlier, <clears throat> what I tell people is. 
um, if there's active disease and you can take a cytology sample and see something that would be consistent with what you suspect, then biopsy is by all means indicated. And that's the hard part is knowing uh, if the cytology sample is, is useful uh, and knowing what you're looking for with the differential diagnosis list. So um, it's a hard question to answer how long to, dis to discontinue the medications is really dependent on how active the disease is. Some of these dogs are ill and have fevers and, and different um, clinical signs. And so making them suffer for weeks, weeks on end before biopsying seems a little uh, nonsensical, but we also want to get an answer. So back to that cytology, which is really useful. If you see lots of inflammatory cells and things you're looking for, then probably a good, good chance you'll get an answer. Um, definitely, I have heard of cases and had cases of my own where <clears throat> infection has really complicated the, the results that we get from biopsy. So, so what are some clinical clues that, that we really need to address infection before we proceed with skin biopsy? Yes, that is a, that's a complicating factor, especially if we're looking for very small changes in the, in the epidermis, for example, some of the crusting diseases. And so if there's any bacteria, looking at a cytology sample uh, underneath the crust or something is, is useful. If there's no bacteria, then probably plow ahead. It never hurts to do uh, a short course of topical, uh, topical antimicrobial therapy like chlorhexidine. We use a lot of topical therapy. And that doesn't mean necessarily a wipe or anything, but a spray or something like that would be very useful. Um, we actually use a lot of 2% chlorhexidine solution, the blue stuff in the jug that's really available pretty much everywhere, and have people use cotton balls or something to dab it on there. Um, you're trying not to disturb the architecture, but you also don't want a whole lot of infection because you're right, exactly. Um, it'll, you'll get reports back that are very murky sometimes. If... Are there times you said you, you really rely quite a bit on topicals there? Are there times where mm -hmm. you're, you're moving to systemic antibiotics? And if you do, what is the first line choice of antibiotics you're using there? With, with widespread disease where it's really impossible to treat every lesion topically, then systemic medications, of course, are, are definitely important. And the cephalosporins are still really good choices. Uh, we're just seeing a lot of resistance, at least in our area. And so... Unfortunately, it's getting less and less easy to predict the susceptibility pattern. It's gotten even more restrictive than it was um, even a few years ago, even maybe last year. So I'm not sure what's happening, but um, if cephalosporins are not improving the condition, then you probably, you may have a resistant infection or you may have a, a truly non-infectious condition to deal with. So you mentioned that really corticosteroids are the only thing that's going to uh, affect your biopsy results. Does that mean we don't need to have a washout period with other medications like antihistamines or oclacitinib? Correct. Very few, um, very few medications do what steroids do, which is why they're so well loved and well used. And for most conditions, the other the other um, medications, as you mentioned, cyclosporin, oclacitinib, um, lokivetmab, all of those are probably uh, rarely going to be problematic. Um, the only can there are very rare exceptions with where. Um, Apoquel might affect uh, a diagnosis with something like a vascular inflammation, but very rare. And so I would, I would really just focus on the steroid drugs. Okay. And then when you are doing these skin biopsies, do you find that sedation is absolutely necessary? <clears throat> um, do you use general anesthesia if your patient is very painful? Um, could you just kind of walk us through a typical sedation protocol for a dog mm -hmm. or a cat? Certainly. I, I'm an optimist and I have tried many times to uh, 
bypass sedation and I've regretted it pretty much every single time. And so even just a, a little bit of butorphanol or whatever you have you use for sedation slash pain control can be very useful, just relaxing um, some of these older patients. Uh, so pretty much most of uh, dexmedetomidine and, and torbutorol or butorphanol is what we use for a pretty standard protocol for biopsies. Um, a little aside, when I was in general practice, uh, before I did my residency, no one told me these things. And I didn't know that lidocaine burned because it's so acidic. And I would anesthetize my patients to put the lidocaine in, which is completely illogical and makes no sense. Uh, but I tell the students these stories all the time so they don't feel so silly. Um, because you look back and like, wow, that was that was really unnecessary, but no one told me these things. And uh, so basically a little relaxation, uh, for a little chemical restraint just to relax the patient. And then um, a local block is, is pretty standard. Uh, my own dermatologist uses the same mixture that we do. And we I, I dilute my lidocaine, the standard lidocaine uh, formulation with 50% sterile water and just sometimes a little, just a little touch of sodium bicarbonate to... Uh, to balance the pH so it doesn't sting it nearly as much. And from personal experience, I can say you don't feel a thing, although our patients seem quite dramatic. So I'm not sure, um, uh, I'm not sure I can equal, equal, you know, equally, equilibrate, equally, that's not a good word. I'm not sure I can correlate my experience with theirs, but um, yes, uh, sedation, I regret it every single time I haven't done it. And then the kitty cats, um, um, we, uh, we just sedated a kitty cat last week for a procedure and, um, for the cats, the same kind of protocol works, works quite well. And, and so, and our, we're very familiar with it. There's always an exception where we have a dog with a heart murmur or something that precludes that protocol. But for the most, the most part, um, just a little light sedation is very helpful. And then some good local block. Good local block. And we'll talk a little mm-hmm. bit after the break too about, um, you know, where we're putting the local block and, mm-hmm. and how to avoid any complications with that. So sure. For, I think you asked me about general anesthesia. I didn't mention that. The only conditions I really, really like to use general anesthesia for is uh, biopsying things on the face, especially the nasal planum and then the paw pads where it's just so, so sensitive and um, really important to get good samples and uh, be able to control the hemorrhage. Yeah, that. That makes total sense. And mm-hmm. I, I always want general anesthesia for anything around the eyes too. I'm always so yeah, paranoid. Yeah. I don't even like to scrape yeah. around the eyes. So yeah, we don't either. I mean, we don't either. Um, and we have these little dental spatulas that are fantastic mm-hmm. that we use around the eye or the tape, but that's another, another, another topic. But yes, I know the eyeballs are not my favorite uh, location either. Looking for that special clinician or veterinary nurse to fill your job opening? Job seekers from all areas of veterinary medicine can meet their ideal match on the Clinician's Brief Career Center. It's the best place to post your unique job opening and know it will be seen by that special someone. Get started at cliniciansbrief.com career center. dive a little deeper into the procedure itself. Um, Let's start with talking about punch biopsies. Those are the ones I use most commonly. Um, So when you're using a punch biopsy, is there a particular size that you prefer um, or does it depend on the lesion that you're sampling? Um, I use a six millimeter punch biopsy for the most part. Uh, Four millimeter punches for anything that would be 
potentially disfiguring to the patient, such as the nasal planum. You can get quite a few samples from even a small dog nose if you have a four millimeter punch. Um, I rarely biopsy the pinna, but if I'm going to, a four millimeter punch is the, the way to go. And if you have a, a large, large dog, like a Great Dane or something, or a large lesion, um, an eight millimeter punch can be utilized. Usually we reserve that for our large animal patients, but occasionally I'm removing something uh, benign uh, that I know is a sebaceous hyperplastic lesion or something, and it might fit inside an eight millimeter punch, and that's handy. And then what type of lesions do you think a punch is not appropriate for that we really should be using an incisional or that wedge biopsy technique? <clears throat> uh, we just had this experience last week again. Um, anything that we can remove in entirety uh, easily is, I think, uh, a good a good a good sample for an incisional or excisional biopsy. Um, wedge biopsies, sometimes on the, the digits, if we're doing a, a biopsy on the claw fold or near that area, sometimes an excisional biopsy um, is useful. But I, I'm pretty much a punch biopsy kind of person most of the time. I, I can't remember the last time I did a wedge biopsy, but that doesn't mean it's not indicated. I just don't tend to do them. And then is there um, utility to, I've, I've heard differing opinions on whether or not you want to get your sample like at the margins of your lesion, you want mm -hmm. to include normal looking skin. I've heard other uh, people say, no, that's really not necessary. You want to go at the center of your lesion. So what are your opinions on that? This is a very difficult topic to find anywhere where it's fleshed out really nicely. And one of the recommended reading uh, uh, recommendations on the in the, the feature, um, uh, Anne Hargis and Sonia Bettinay are the authors. It's a wonderful little tiny spiral notebook or spiral textbook, and it explains all of this. And it's the only source that I've really found that I found that it was clear and it was actually very 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 well done. And um, this is uh, this is sometimes challenging and. The what you what you really want to do is you really you really want lesional skin and that's uh, sort of near the edge. But one of the uh, an example recently was a, a veterinarian called me and asked me for some questions asked some questions about the biopsy report and it was a very well reputable laboratory and a pathologist that I know and the veterinarian had biopsied the nasal planum but the section she was questioning me or asking me about was talking about haired skin. And that's not what we were talking about. And so it's not something I would have caught as a practitioner. I just, because you're reading the bottom, you're not reading all the words that say all these big things. You're looking for what they, what the interpretation is. And so when I asked her, I said, did you biopsy haired skin? And she said, well, I didn't intend to. And so that's what happens when it's half normal and half abnormal is the, the haired skin or what's normal might be what is processed. The whole biopsy is in the paraffin block, but they may not be slicing that section. And so that's why lesional skin is so important to give them as much as possible. And then if you have a section where, for example, a condition where the skin, you want to send some normal skin, for example, some of the alopecia disorders, what looks normal might not actually be normal. So I'll send another piece of normal looking skin and label it separately in a separate container as clinically normal or visually normal, grossly normal skin. And that way they have an opportunity um, to look at all of that. Otherwise, you know, some of these little things just, just get by when you're busy. General practice is a hard job and there's a lot going on. And so really getting your lesion in the, in the middle is, is important and then not discarding any of the material that's attached to the section. So if you're biopsying an ulcer and you just give them an ulcer, then we know it's an ulcer. Like that, that's not usually going to be very helpful. You want some diseased skin adjacent to the ulcer 
And then also the other thing that's tempting is to throw away the scab or the crust that's on top of that. And that's where the information is. So we don't want to do that. That's, that's the most important part sometimes gets discarded. And so if anything falls off of your skin while you're taking it, get it in the jar with a lot, the rest of it and give it all to them. And I know that um, sometimes you can inadvertently just in your tissue handling, you know, inadvertently cause some artifacts if, if you, you know, uh, crush your tissue too much mm-hmm. with your forceps or, or even, um, you know, when with your punch biopsy blade, if it starts to become dull, things like that. So uh, how many, how many samples are you generally taking and when do, how many times are you taking a sample before you discard, you know, your average punch biopsy? Uh, usually we can get about three samples out of one, one instrument. If the hair, if the skin has got quite a dense um, hair coat remaining, we may trim the hair. We don't want it. We're not going to clip it, but we might trim it to make it shorter, but that's going to dull the blade really quickly because it's like sandpaper essentially. And so very abrasive. And so we might just get one or two um, out of a, a, situ- a sample like that. But when there's a lot of hair that's, present, just be prepared to have to change it um, more soon, more quickly. And then in your article, you actually suggest marking the lesions that you intend to biopsy. So how do you do that? And and why do you find that that's a really important step? I actually just use four dots. So I make a kind of a, at the corner, each corner. And to be honest, part of it, so I know what I selected. So I don't forget when I come back around and I'm like, oh, what did I pick here? Um, I'm looking for a variety of lesions. And so one of the things that is always in my head when I'm picking lesions is I want something that looks different. So whatever looks different is what I want to sample. If there's a crust, uh, a papule or a pustule, I want that. If it's an alopecia erythematous area, I want that. So I'm dotting so I can remind myself, A, what I chose. A, also... I'm going to describe the lesion. If it's a crust, I'm going to put, you know, section one is crust. I'm going to put that in jar number one. So I can correlate my clinical lesion with the piece of tissue I put in the jar. So it's a lot of it's for me for organizational, you know, reasons. And also um, whoever's suturing uh, knows where where I was, where I, I was taking my samples. And so we're kind of following behind each other. Um, but that's most of the reason I'm looking at my, assessing what I've chosen and to see if I still agree with what I chose and then um, going from there. So it's really it's useful. And also if I have students with me, they can see what we're doing as well. And then, um, this is the time we probably want to talk a little bit about, um, local blocks. Cause I said we would, <laughs> um, mm-hmm. so are there, you know, what kind of complications can we cause, uh, artifacts giving our local block, you know, what are, what are we trying to avoid there and, um, how can, we maximize, you know, the, the positive effects of that local block so that our patient isn't feeling any pain uh, without okay. affecting our results. The, uh, the only complications I've really run into or thought about when I'm doing local blocks is if you're using a, a, a product that has epinephrine in it or something that's designed to keep the, the, you know, the numbing agent present in that area. If you have an endon arterial, you don't want to use epinephrine in those areas, but the majority of the time we are not doing that and we're using straight lidocaine with um, diluted with zero water and a little tiny bit of sodium bicarb, which isn't essential, but um, from personal experience, uh, it feels better. Uh, and sometimes uh, if you just use a large amount there, then it might bleed excessively, but it, excessively is from a dermatologist's perspective, completely different than excessively from a surgeon's perspective. Surgery. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Very, very different. And so um, I'm just more, uh, 
uh, impatient when it's uh, it's oozing or such that I can't suture fast enough or I have someone has to blot for me or what have you. And so it's not a, a life or death kind of situation. Oh, it better not be anyway in my part of the hospital. Um, and so really complications are rare. It's just when you're trying to block something that a digit or uh, uh, a, an extremity of some sort, a toe, like I'm, sometimes I'm taking off a, a sebaceous hyperplasia lesion on a digit or something. That's, it's really hard to block that because of there's so little sub tissue there. And so um, I don't know that I have a great answer for that. It's just um, uh, a couple of different tries and diff- trying to diffuse the area as much as possible without um, exceeding the volume for a small, small dog, if it's a dog or a cat. Yeah. I guess that's, that's one thing that we always want to keep in mind, especially with little cats is just mm-hmm. to be really careful with that lidocaine dosage. So, and then you touched on this a little bit um, because you said that you don't want to clip your skin, but sometimes we do need to remove the hair. Um, so when we're preparing the, the biopsy site, how do we strike that right balance between preserving the sample, the crust, the things that they want, but also making sure that we get really optimal visuals, visualization of our lesion um, that we're biopsying? You know, I just use uh, some scissors usually to trim the hair. If there's a lot of hair in that area. Um, if you have, we actually use a lot of bikini clippers, which sounds kind of uh, bizarre, but you get really small areas. Um, you can clip easily and you don't get too much hair, but um, we had a new set of brand new clippers recently and I was looking for some great lesions. I ended up clipping a half the side of the dog before I realized how much hair I took off. And I told the owner, I said, but the, the side is great. You can look at all the lesions we can see. I can, I got great pictures. So look at the side, uh, but it was actually really necessary. Um, in that situation, the veterinarian that referred the case had biopsy the dog the week prior and it only because I was clipping and looking and, um, and I had the advantage of knowing that her biopsies didn't give her an answer. There were a few clues, but um, it just happens to be um, what she biopsied was very appropriate. I just probably took more hair, <laughs> took more hair. And I, and I knew what I was looking for specifically, but those are very frustrating scenarios for owners and for veterinarians when all the diagnostics are appropriately chosen, but the results are very different. And so clipping, yes, clipping is important. And sometimes you just have to, to just remove that hair, but just can't, but you don't want to disrupt, like you said, the surface, the crust. And so just trimming is, is ideal with but leaving the surface as intact as, as much as possible. Yeah, it can be amazing how much those lesions hide underneath the mm-hmm. the really long haired, you know, long haired cats or long haired dogs. Um, mm-hmm. Once you get that that hair out of the way, yeah, yeah, and that that is a challenge. I um, I don't usually get excessively, you know, um, enthusiastic with the clippers, but they were brand new and they were like butters, so nice. I kept seeing more <laughs> lesions, and I was like, I was like, please take the clippers away from me. Um, but the, you need to get the answer, and and uh, it was a, a nice. Uh, a nice case. And the owner was fine with that, of course. But uh, at the time I was like, oh Lord, oh no, I have to go talk to her. (laughs) (laughs) So let's talk a little bit about um, culture. Okay. So skin culture. Um, What are specific considerations for, for selecting sites when you want to do a culture in addition to your histopathology? Okay. Anything that's deeper draining. Um, Some of, some of the terminology, the you know, casual speak will use is if it's a lump, a bump, or a draining tract, then you want a biopsy and you want deep tissue culture for that. And so the reason being the differential diagnoses are either in the infectious category, the sterile inflammatory category, or the neoplastic category. And the biopsy itself, the histopathology is going to rule in or rule out the neoplasia usually. And then uh, the rest of the processes are going to be pyogranulomatous. And so it could be sterile, it could be infectious. So without that tissue culture, you don't know. 
and you end up having to either guess or go back and repeat the process to get your tushy cultures and and that's frustrating and, and costs you know more time and money for the owner and, and the veterinarian and so getting it from the very beginning but to lump a bumper draining tract it's deep then you want to get a tissue culture if, if it's financially feasible from the very start and how does your technique for sample collection differ if you're going to be collecting tissue samples for culture tissue samples for culture are uh, something that you want to get right from the very beginning and so i'm going to use I'm using sterile instruments anyway, but I'm going to be very, very cautious about my technique and making sure that I'm actually going to scrub the surface lightly with uh, for a culture sample because I don't want the surface. I want the deep stuff that's walled off in, in all of the fibrous tissue or in the pocket. And so the surface doesn't matter with that, 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 that sample. So I'm going to lightly scrub it. I'm going to rinse it thoroughly because I don't want that chlorhexidine or whatever scrub I'm using to dilute my, my, uh, my sample you know, when I'm removing it. And then I'm going to use sterile gloves, sterile instruments, sterile gauze, all of that. And then once I've got that sample and it's safely in the, the culture uh, container, the Petri dish, the red top tube, whatever you're using to transport it, I know for, for certain a culturette is not what the, patho- or the microbiologists want. They will um, not be very happy trying to dig your tissue, your chunk of tissue out of a, the media. They want a red top tube or a, a sterile container. And if you don't know what they prefer, I would definitely check with the lab. Um, but get that once that's in the tissue in the sterile container, then then we're being clean and we're still using good technique. But the sterility is not not the essential part. Now we want to preserve all of the architecture and we're not clipping. I mean, we're not scrubbing. We're not cleaning. We're leaving it all alone. We might trim like we mentioned earlier, but there's no surface preparation for the histopathology part. OK. And then um, you have a couple tricks as well uh, when you're preserving your biopsy samples mm-hmm. um, with an index card or tongue depressor. Could you could you explain that to our audience? Of course. Uh, once the sample is in the formalin, the, the color disappears for the most part, and the pathologist doesn't know which is up and which is down, especially if there's an alopecia lesion. And so it's helpful to preserve the architecture as much as possible when they're trimming it into the into the, the paraffin block and then they're taking the, making the slices basically but it helps them orient the tissue when they're placing it and, and getting ready to trim it and so it's more a, a more of a helpful chip to, to for the pathologist to be able to see what's what's top what's bottom and the important thing is to make sure it's upside down in the formalin though if it's upside if it's floating like a little boat then it's not going to get fixed and it's a useless sample and so making sure it does get turned over um i suppose people use also could use cassettes or something like that mm-hmm. um to submit it just some way to get the the communication to the pathologist which which parts up which parts down if they can if they can absolutely and then are there any additional precautions or tips when you're preserving the samples um to to keep them effectively until they reach the laboratory I have definitely had a problem where I have included samples with formalin in the same bag as samples that I've sent for cytology, and that has mm. caused some problems. Yeah, yeah. Actually, when I was at Iowa State, I asked the pathologist to call me when they had a sample that was um, unable to be used, and sometimes the samples were frozen. And so in the middle of the winter, if it was too big uh, yes. for the for the formalin, right? And so I have some great samples, uh, pictures of, of frozen tissue samples that were supposed to be, you know, formalin fixed. And, you know, you don't think about those things sometimes. Or the, the sample, if it's a larger piece of tissue, I'll incise into it. So the formalin fixes the center of it and make sure that it gets all the way through. And then back to that rule of, you know, a ratio of 10 to 1, you know, 10 formalin to 1 tissue kind of is the what we've been taught um, to make sure you have enough formalin to fix all that tissue. 
And then uh, I separate my samples into individual jars. And so um, each sample is in a different jar and then based on which clinical lesion I've chosen. Um, and then they're labeled that way. Um, and most of the laboratories, at least well, the ones I'm familiar with, do not charge any more for having multiple cups as long as it's all the same. It's skin. You know, it's not skin mm-hmm. and liver and lung or whatever. And so those are my tips because sometimes you remember you biopsied something, like we said earlier, that should be a, a hairless tissue, but they re- they're reading out haired skin. That doesn't make any sense. And so trying to catch those things so you can communicate with your pathologist uh, when you're trying to figure out what, what's going on. And then the final step when we get done with our biopsy is actually to close that site. And you said you have come someone coming along behind you and, and yeah. suturing up for you. I yeah. want one of those. Yeah, I know. I know. The, stu- the students are amazing. And um, I defer all the time. Sometimes I... They think I'm kidding, but I'm like, would you, what would you like to do with this? Um, this closure, I've created a little bit of a large wound or we have a brand new CO2 laser and sometimes I'm a little um, excitable with the laser. I like it, but then um, I'm asking them to, what kind of closure do you want? They think I'm humoring them. Like, no, no, really? What, 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 what should I do? What should I do here? Uh, but uh, we, most of my lesions and honestly, I haven't even biopsied so much. I'm directing and, and I'm being the cruise director, but to my residents and students, I'm letting them do the do the job and showing them how how it's not technically challenging to do these things. It's really just about thinking and organizing yourself and and keeping track of what your samples are and where they're going. But uh, simple interrupteds, I use simple interrupteds if I'm trying to keep things very cosmetic. Um, cruciate uh, pattern is absolutely acceptable. Um, the one thing I will will remind people and myself included is not to use non-absorbable suture in a nasal planum, for example, trying to remove those sutures uh, without a sedated patient is not easy. Um, and I did that to myself not long ago. And I was like, wow, these poor veterinarians are probably, um, no one's called me and said, hey, by the way, please don't do that. That's hard. Because uh, mm-hmm. I had to do it myself. And it was really, uh, I was like, wow, this is not, uh, it's not easy. So absorbable sutures, of course, in certain areas where you don't want to have to um, sedate the patient just to remove the suture. But simple interrupters are nice, um, and every once in a while we'll do an uh, intradermal or a, a, not usually a subcutaneous pattern, but there are some times when the lesions are deeper than I expected, and we'll have to do a, a, a second layer and then close with the, the standard um, um, skin sutures. And then, then close on top. Do you ever yeah. leave um, you know, a, a small biopsy site? open just to granulate in, especially mm-hmm. I know around the nose or the nasal planum or, or the paw pads where you can get, you know, if you try to put a suture in, sometimes it ends up being really non-cosmetic and puckered. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Some of those areas are just not, not suitable for closure and they, they close nicely and that there's nothing important going to fall out um, in my part of the hospital, at least. Um, that's the way I, you know, sometimes the uh, owners are very concerned and I remind them mm-hmm. that there's no organs that are going to fall out. It'll be fine. But um, we want it to look nice, but sometimes it's not possible. It's just not enough, like you said, not enough subcute tissue to close that nicely. Well, that was the end of all my clinical questions. Um, Our regular listeners know that this is the time that we get to ask some fun questions. So we play a little game at the end, at the end of our episodes. (laughs) Um, It's just a series of would you rather questions. So would you like to play? Yeah, I'd love to. All right. So would you rather someone steal your favorite pen or someone throw away your skin scrape spatula? Oh, pen for sure. I, I, yes, for real. I, I'm a pen person. I like my pen. Well, people that know me from Iowa State, uh, I had a very specific pen pattern in my pocket. Um, and Dr. Knoxon is the, um, 
notorious using one blade spatula for decades and forever so and ever mm-hmm. <laughs> and nice we and differed on that. We, yeah we dip we differed in that in case there was a couple situations where i found some demon x mites on a, a case that was from a previous case and i was like oh ho ho look what happened <laughs> and so we we had a fun uh you know back and forth about that but i'm pen please don't throw my my pen okay <laughs> would you um do you generally prefer to treat your own pets or do you prefer to have a trusted colleague do it oh gosh uh irrational owner um and i am the worst history giver of my own pets and so i just hand them over and i just just i just all the things that we tell owners not to do is what i do one dose didn't work let me switch this let me do that so i hand it over and i just tell them um Go forth. It's yeah, please. better to let someone else take care of it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Would you rather find out that the puppy you were just snuggling has scabies or that the five kittens you just examined all have ringworm? Um, I think uh, ringworm's okay. Ringworm's okay with me. I've given myself ringworm by inoculating myself when I was doing a lab set up at Iowa State and not wearing <laughs> gloves like a smart person. Um, but, you know, it clears pretty nicely with some uh, terbinafin from the foot care aisle. Aisle at um, CVS. Mm-hmm. Yep. We, had a, we have a, a rescue facility, a tiger um, rescue facility in our area. And many times the, the animals are here for other workups. And there was a group of folks that got got some ringworm from the tigers mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. we had a big terbinafin everybody had their own terbinafin i was not involved but everyone had their own terbinafin tube walking around and everybody was fine the scabies situation though not not not, not a fan yeah i actually <laughs> i don't think that i have ever gotten ringworm from a dog or a cat but my grandfather had a dairy farm in iowa oh yeah mm-hmm. i swear if i am within 10 feet of a cow with ringworm i have it mm-hmm. i don't know <laughs> wow Wow, that you probably don't get poison ivy. That's one of my my one of my mentors' theories is that mm-hmm. you either get poison ivy or dermatophytosis. You don't get both. You don't based get on your, both. That's yeah, based on your you yeah, based, study. Yeah, based on your immune system, your the way your T cells uh, get activated. So I think she's right. She's right about lots of things, though. All right, two more questions. Would you rather okay. practice without topical steroids or without oral steroids? Topical by far. They're the bane of my. Uh, complications don't um yeah the top the topicals can really uh can really mess 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 things up a little bit not the end of the world but um i've learned a lot about potency from the topical Mm -hmm. steroids that that are on the market and even in the human world i have a lot of clients that are mds and some of the things they have they use i'm like wow i had no idea this existed and it's really strong Mm -hmm. all right last question would you rather be covered in fur or covered in scales Oh my gosh. Oh no. I don't know. Oh, I, this is a little uncomfortable. Uh, I'm going to say scales, I guess, because this could be glittery and all kinds of different colors and sparkly Ooh. and, and fur. I don't know if it falls out and you're patchy. I just don't know if I like the moth eaten look. I think, I think scales is what I'm going to go for. They're more decorative. I like that. I like that answer. Yeah. Yeah, I usually go with fur because I'm always cold, which is why I moved oh. yeah, out of Iowa. Um, gotcha. But, gotcha. but I like the decorative aspect yeah, of can, scales. I might have to bling reconsider. That you can bling that up. It's all kinds of iridescent things. I mean, I think you can really do a lot with that. Okay. Well, that was it. That was all my questions. Okay. Those all were right. fantastic answers. We had Thank so much you. fun today. Hopefully, maybe you can join us again sometime. I'd, I'd love to. Thank you so much. Thank you all for listening to today's episode of Clinicians Brief, the podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts, including a video version that we have on YouTube. While you're there, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review us. 
You can also listen to or watch our podcast episodes on our website at cliniciansbrief.com slash podcasts. Or if you'd like, drop us a line at podcasts at vetmedics.com. Clinicians Brief the Podcast is a VetMedics production produced by Alexis Ussery and hosted by me, Dr. Alyssa Watson.